second wave of quarantined evidence-based radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. Someday I'll switch that up, I promise. (laughs) I I apologize to regular listeners who can probably uh, say that along with me every single week. Um, before we started, get started tonight, I do want to, uh, sort of cautiously, uh, celebrate the win of Mary Pelota in the Alaska special election, which is the first use of ranked choice voting in the state, which I am very much in favor. Um, she represents the first Alaska native to be a representative in Congress for the state of Alaska, which has a population of almost 20% indigenous uh, identifying people. So that's, that's pretty, um, it's pretty sad, but it's also good for her. Um, Now she'll have to defend her seat in November, but being the incumbent always helps. Um, And so I was pretty excited yesterday, um, (laughs) TBH, um, and, uh, I was pretty excited about the fact that one of her campaign, uh, sort of slogans was that she was the only non-multimillionaire in the race. But as of today, she's talking about how her, um, win is a win for compromise. And that to me doesn't bode well. Um, since, uh, Democrats are usually the ones who compromise to Republicans and almost never the other way around. So, um, I'm still going to be conscious, cautious, cautiously optimistic about this. And, um, just for the historic nature of it, um, even though, again, that's very sad that it is historic, um, I do definitely want to congratulate her. Okay, so tonight we are going to take a couple of minutes and talk about the trifecta of infectious diseases that continue to hit the headlines. Unfortunately, we can't take every week off because they just keep being here and being a problem. And so first off, let's talk about how the FDA has approved the new COVID-19 booster vaccine from Moderna and Pfizer BioNTech. Of course, you may have also heard that Moderna is now suing Pfizer BioNTech, but I'm not going to get into that because, well, for one thing, I am not a lawyer. I will wait for the Legal Eagle YouTube episode on it, frankly. (laughs) Um, and I bet there will be one. Um, but anyways, hopefully the CDC will soon authorize the vaccine to be distributed. The new version contains messenger RNA that is meant to create an immune response to both the original strain as well as the Omicron variants BA4 and BA5. 
And so it does that basically by uh, teaching the body to create uh, basically um, lookalike spike proteins, which then teaches the immune system to fight off anything that has those spike proteins. The FDA has been planning for the possibility that the composition of the COVID-19 vaccines would need to be modified to address circulating variants, said Peter Marks, director of the FDA's Center for Biological Evaluation and Research, in a statement from the agency. Now, one thing you can uh, note is that the FDA did rely on safety and immune response data from earlier clinical clinical trials to of the booster vaccines that were tailored to the BA1 variant. But the agency notes that this is the same way that we evaluate the yearly flu vaccine. The public can be assured that a great deal of care has been taken by the FDA to ensure that these bivalent COVID-19 vaccines meet our rigorous safety, effectiveness, and manufacturing quality standards for emergency use authorization, added Marks. The Pfizer BioNTech booster will be available to anyone who is over the age of 12 and is at least two months out from their primary series of booster. The Moderna is only available for those over 18 within the same timeline. And while boosters may be approved within weeks or days even, it will most likely be limited initially to high-risk groups such as the elderly and healthcare workers. And so it may be some time before you and I can get it, which um, we all know that I'm a little bit frustrated about that. But we'll we'll just have to wait and um, get to it. Okay, so let's now turn to monkeypox. And you may have heard that there has been a report in the U.S. of the first documented death related to the disease. This seems to be in a patient in Texas who was already severely immunocompromised. Now, it's important to remember that this disease has a very low mortality rate. With 48,000 cases worldwide, 18,000 of those in the U.S., there have only been six reported deaths outside of Africa where it's actually endemic. Now, One of the big takeaways from this remains the issue with our lack of preparedness and the problem with getting much-needed vaccines to at-risk populations. We will continue to have global issues when we have a global society. And so one of the other things that's happening is that a lot of tropical diseases are moving north. And so that's going to also be a burden on our health systems and on our ability to be able to actually fight these diseases and contain them. And as you can see in the last couple of years, we didn't do a good job and we continue to not do a great job. And um, yeah, it's, it's not great. And so um, I think that We really need to be pushing for 
better infrastructure for preparedness for these kinds of infectious diseases that, you know, used to only be in one small area of the world and then suddenly are being found everywhere. And before we move on to other things, the third thing that I wanted to talk about um, was the polio outbreak in New York, because I think we should take a moment to be slightly horrified, frankly, at the fact that it is expanding. Polio has now been detected in Rockland, Orange, and Sullivan County, in addition to New York City. And this is uh, mostly through um, wastewater surveillance. And so all three counties have vaccination rates of less than 65%. And that means that some of these communities have vaccination rates in the uh, 35% range, around 35%, which is frankly abysmal. One New Yorker paralyzed by polio is already too many, and I do not want to see another paralytic case, State Health Commissioner Dr. Mary Bassett said in a statement. The polio in New York today is an imminent threat to all adults and children who are unvaccinated or not up to date with their polio immunizations. Every New Yorker, parent, guardian, and pediatrician must do everything possible to ensure they, their children, and their patients are protected against this dangerous, debilitating disease through safe and effective vaccination. Now, of course, this is great rhetoric, but the follow-through from people has not uh, been good. The vaccine clinics that they have set up have been woefully underused so far, and so it's very frustrating and um, you know, the whole resistance to vaccination thing is just so upsetting because when the polio vaccine was first developed, people lined the streets to get it. And now people are like, oh, I don't know if a vaccine is worse than getting polio. Trust me, it is worse than getting, I mean, polio is much worse than the vaccine. Um, and so, yeah, I think that unfortunately the resistance is most likely due in large part, not only to, um, religious conviction, but also to vaccine conspiracy theories. And, um, obviously people have strongly held religious beliefs and I want to respect those, but I don't think that we should respect beliefs that include endangering children. Um, where they can be protected instead. Um, and I know there's a whole larger issue of autonomy and parents' rights and all of that sort of thing. But as an individual, I'm simply going to say that I think that childhood vaccinations should be mandatory and the only exceptions should be for medical reasons. And, um, you know, I'm not a policymaker, so I can hold that opinion um, because I don't have to think about the, uh, you know, 10 million different fragments of how that is potentially uh, problematic. 
I think it's pretty straightforward. And I think that um, people's ability to use things like religion to prevent their children from accessing life-saving uh, interventions is, I just, I, I just don't understand how they can do it. Um, and it's very frustrating as someone who doesn't believe in those sorts of things to see children potentially be harmed because of a belief system and not based on a medical condition or an actual allergy or something like that. And again, this isn't a like railing against religion itself. It's a just a really strong sense of sadness that humans have these social constructs that prevent them from being able to see that modern medicine, at least in uh, the form of vaccines, is one of the greatest things that humans have ever produced. And if you believe that humans were made in the in the image of God, then you know this is something that the people that God made made. And so it's very hard for me not to uh, want to sort of shake people and say, you know, find a way to justify it in your religion because it's so important. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's frustrating and we just have to keep trying and keep trying. And um, yeah. And of course, it's not just religion because it's also people who were convinced by Andrew Wakefield who um, I often wish I believed in eternal punishment because if anyone deserved it, it's him. Um, but, um, you know, and the anti-vax movement. And so a lot of those people aren't even religious. And so it's not unique to religious people. It's just that kind of mindset where you start to believe in a set of ideas and then you can't break out of them. Um, and obviously, I'm not going to solve that cognitive issue tonight or any night. And so um, I do want to move on and talk about other things. But it is just very unfortunate. And I wish there was more that we could do. Okay. Let us leave infectious diseases and all of the things that go with them, including resistance to uh, life-saving vaccines, <sighs> and talk about other things. And so we are going to be able to move on now and talk about a few stories that basically um, I just haven't been able to fit them in in the last couple months but they've been sort of sitting in an open uh, window of uh, my browser waiting for the right moment. <laughs> and so this first one, I kept saying, oh, maybe I can do it tonight, but it just never quite fit in. Let's talk about a giant bacteria that, can, that has been found that you can see with the naked eye. These new bacteria basically look like tiny bits of string. It's 5,000 times bigger than most bacteria. 
To put it in context, it would be like a human encountering another human as tall as Mount Everest, said Jean-Marie Valland, a scientist for the U.S. Department of Energy's Joint Genome Institute, with appointments at Berkeley Lab and at a company in Menlo Park. Voland and his colleagues, along with researchers at the Université de Antilles in Guadeloupe, described the morphological and genomic features of the giant filamentous bacterium in the journal Science back in June. And so they also described the life cycle of the bacterium that live in and around mangroves growing on the island of Guadeloupe and quite possibly in other parts of the Caribbean. In addition to being huge for a, bacteri- for a bacterium, it actually also keeps its DNA differently from most bacteria. In traditional bacteria, the DNA floats freely in the cytoplasm, but this bacteria keeps it more contained. The big surprise of the project was to realize that these genome copies that are spread throughout the whole cell are actually contained within a structure that has a membrane, Valand said. And this is very unexpected for a bacterium. The bacterium was first discovered by Olivier Gros, a marine biology professor at the Université de Antilles, in 2009. Gros' research is focused on marine mangrove systems, and he was looking for sulfur-oxidizing symbionts in sulfur-rich mangrove sediments close to his lab. And so um, basically, they were looking for um, organisms that have symbiotic relationships. When I saw them, I thought, strange, he said. In the beginning, I thought it was just something curious, some white filaments that needed to be attached to something in the sediment, like a leaf. After studying the bacterium for the next few years, the team were able to determine that it is a sulfur-oxidizing prokaryote. Silvina Gonzalez-Rizzo, an associate professor of molecular biology at the University de Antilles and a co-author of the study, ran the gene sequencing to identify and classify this prokaryote. I thought they were eukaryotes. I didn't think they were bacteria because they were so big with seemingly a lot of filaments, she recalled of her first impression. We realized they were unique because it looked like a single cell. The fact that they were a macro microbe was fascinating. And so she named the species Theomargarita magnifica. And so the full name is Candidatus Theomargarita magnifica. And so Candidatus is simply a um, prefix that is put onto the front of bacteria that have not been cultivated in the lab. And it's usually just uh, notated as CA period and then the name. And so Valan first worked with T. Magnifica when he was a postdoctoral fellow at the Grow Lab and then was allowed to continue to study the organism when he moved up to the U.S. Mangroves and their microbes are important ecosystems for carbon cycling. 
If you look at the space that they occupy on a global scale, it's less than 1% of the coastal area worldwide. But when you then look at carbon storage, you'll find that they contribute 10 to 15% of the carbon stored in coastal sediments, said Tanya Woike, a senior author and head of JGI's microbial program. And so the JGI team was, again, looking for potential interactions with other microorganisms initially. We started the project under the JGI's strategic thrust of interorganismal interactions because large sulfur bacteria have been shown to be hotspots for symbiotes, um, Woike said. Yet this project took us in a very different direction. Voland studied the bacterium using various advanced kinds of microscopy, including transmission electron microscopy, or TEM, in order to visualize the filaments and confirm that they were indeed a single cell rather than multicellular filaments, as, in, as is common in other large sulfur bacteria. He was also able to image the membrane containers that held the DNA clusters, which he dubbed pepins, after small seeds in fruit. Voland noted, The bacteria contained three times more genes than most bacteria and hundreds of thousands of genome copies that are spread throughout the entire cell. This project has been a nice opportunity to demonstrate how complexity has evolved in some of the simplest organisms, said Shailish Date, founder and CEO of the Laboratory for Researcher Research in Complex Systems at Menlo Park, who is also one of the author's senior authors, articles senior authors. One of the things we've argued is that there is need to look at and study biological complexity in much more detail than what is being done currently. So organisms that we think are very, very simple might have some surprises. And so, yeah, it's very exciting. And so the discovery opens up the pathway to several new questions and lines of research. For instance, what is the role of T. magnifica in the mangrove ecosystem? Are the pepins really a newly discovered organelle or have they been found before and perhaps misinterpreted? And what role might they play in the evolution of the bacterium? How do they form and how are they regulated within the cell? Gonzalez Rizzo and Boike are hoping to work on these answers once they've successfully cultivated the bacteria in the lab. If we can maintain these bacteria in a laboratory setting, we can use techniques that are not feasible right now, Boike said. For his part, Gro wants to look at other large bacteria. You can find some TEM pictures and see what look like pepins. So maybe people saw them but did not understand what they were. That will be very interesting to check if the pepins are already present everywhere. And so the team also worked with lar a larger international team, including colleagues from the National Museum of Natural History in France, the Sorbonne, and Cornell University. And so, yeah, all in all, I think it is pretty neat and it's a good 
example of finding something and then having that find lead to all sorts of other kinds of uh, questions that then need looking into. Um, One thing I did note, though, that was interesting, and I wish that I knew a little bit more about it, but I didn't have time to really research it, and I'm not sure how I would. Um, But one of the people who uh, funded the study were the Templeton Foundation. Um, And if you don't know, the Templeton Foundation um, is a organization that gives money to researchers and uh, one of their underlying goals is to find ways to connect God and science. And um, I am generally uh, of the opinion that the Templeton Foundation is, um, I think some people believe it's kind of a necessary evil, but I think that um, I, if I were a researcher, basically, I would not take money from them. Um, I think it's one of those places, you know, separation of church and state, I think separation of church and science. And um, it's just always, whenever I see something about the Templeton Foundation, it makes me a little bit uneasy because I immediately start to think how they might try to manipulate the research to their own ends. And, you know, I kind of feel that way about any kind of organization with a particular idea about how they would like to be able to use that research. So um, I think that this is another reason why we need to have more public uh, funds available for research, because what you end up with is all of these private organizations with money and with those monies don't necessarily come strings, but can come with a sort of ideological taint to them. And um, yeah, I mean, the Templeton Foundation is definitely not a overtly evil organization. They are very much a, you know, neutral at worst, um, you know, they're, they're, slightly, slightly more positive than neutral, um, in favor of their idea that we are giving you this money so that maybe, maybe you'll find something that we want you to find, but it's not very over. And so I don't want to make them out to be villains or anything like that. I just think they're part of a, um, squishiness that I don't appreciate in my science I would like to keep my science harder than that um, in a weird, for a weird analogy, which doesn't really work, but please forgive me for using it um, because obviously not all science is hard science, but um, yeah, I definitely think that the Templeton Foundation is a little bit suspect um, personally when I see it. I'm wondering what motive they have in funding the research. But I do think that this research is totally cool. And I love the idea that we found something once again, that we weren't expecting to find that was in basically literal plain sight. And now we have all these new questions to ask about it. And I love that. I think it's totally awesome. And so yeah, 
But I have been rambling for a while now, and I'm sorry about that. But let's take a break. And when we come back, we will continue to talk about interesting things. So you are listening to Evidence-Based Radio, and I hope that you will continue to after this break for some show promos and some PSAs. Outbreaks of whooping cough, or pertussis, are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in a CD or tape player. Each week presenting shows which can at times be organized and orderly, and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's Subculture Music Program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXLJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. The Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, and the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton. So come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive, factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7, here on Valley Free Radio, or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. Okay, we are back. You are hopefully still listening to Evidence-Based Radio. And we're going to start this half with a story about a um, protein that is a part of 
eukaryotes and actually is one of the things that separates eukaryotes from prokaryotes. So we were just talking about an odd prokaryote and now we're going to talk about a protein that helps differentiate them from eukaryotes. And so a team of researchers from Nagoya University in Japan believe they discovered a missing link between bacterial cells and animal and plant cells. They've coined the term Odin tubulin for the discovery. And so this is because one of the organisms that they were using to actually find this um, protein is named after Odin, who is, of course, uh, the Norse god who is often called the Allfather. Knowing the origin of tubulin is fundamental to an understanding of how eukaryotes separated from po- prokaryotes, with tubulin forming microtubules critical to the internal structure of the eukaryotes. And so tubulin is key to eukaryotes maintaining their structure, shape, and internal organization. Researchers studied members of the Asgard Archaea superphylum to study the evolution of features of plant and animal cells because they're thought to be basically the closest relatives um, to actual uh, prokaryotes. Now, Archaea are basically, they're like bacteria, but they differ in important ways. So they're kind of an intermediary between bacteria and plants and animals. They have a unique genetic makeup and cell structure. And so publishing in Science Advances, Akihiro Narita, an associate professor in the Division of Biological Sciences at Nagoya, led a group that included members from the Tokyo Institute of Technology, the Okayama University, and the Earth Life Science Institute. The team used x-rays to study a tubulin homologue protein from the archaeon Odin archaeota. Its filament structure was surprising. The diameter was 100 nanometers, which is much wider than the microtubules of eukaryotes, Narita explained. The architecture was also unique. The molecules polymerize into arcs, which are then assembled into a slinky-like coil. We can view this coil structure as an intermediate in the evolution between FTSZ, a bacteria tubulin homologue that also polymerizes into rings, and the tubulin found in plant and animal cells. Now, Narita's group hypothesized that tubulin might have evolved before the origin of plant and animal cells. With the segregation of chromosomes of increasing size and an increasing overall size of cells, this may have required the development of stiffer tubules to support larger distances and or cellular material. And so this have may, this may then have led to the evolution from a flexible type to the stiffer parallel protofilament patterns seen in microtubules. We believe it is highly likely 
that microtubules are the middle of the evolutionary process. This discovery reveals part of how eukaryotes, including us, came into being, notes Nerida. And so, yeah, that's very cool. And um, I like being able to know more about how uh, the first eukaryotes developed. And so um, just because I didn't say it explicitly before, I thought I had um, when I was making my notes um, that eukaryotes are distinguished by having a nucleus. And so prokaryotes usually only have, um, again, the DNA being free-floating in the um, in the cytoplasm, which is, of course, why that uh, huge bacteria with the um, pepins is actually quite interesting because that's not usually how you have um, a prokaryote cell. And so that might actually be something that is also part of this process of evolution. So there's still lots to know. Um, and again, super fascinating to be able to kind of figure out how did the first plants and animal cells develop and how did they come out of these bacteria that, uh, you know, lived for really long times all by themselves and, um, you know, how did we develop these cells that have discrete nuclei? So yeah, origin of the life stuff is always cool. But let us move on now, and we are going to switch gears from uh, sort of the cellular level to the macro level, and we're going to talk about some cool animals. So, the first thing we want to talk about is bats and memory. A fascinating study recently showed that bats can remember a specific ringtone up to four years after first being conditioned to respond to it. Researchers led by May Dixon, now a postdoc at The Ohio State University, but at the time with the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute in Panama, uh, when she was a grad student at the University of Texas, Austin, caught 49 frog-eating bats and trained them to fly toward a sound, a given sound in the lab. The sounds started with the mating call of one of their favorite foods, the Tungara frog, and slowly they were mixed and then transformed into a ringtone. So obviously something man-made and not something that they would have found in the wild. The frogs, Trachops serosus, are also called fringe-lipped bats, which is a better description for visualizing them. They have little protrusions all around their mouths with a leaf-shaped nose and fairly large ears. Researchers believe that the bumps might be used to secrete toxin-neutralizing chemicals to protect them against, well, the poisons that those uh, frogs secrete on their skin in order to be able to eat them more easily. And so this latest research 
which is published in Cell Biology, focuses on training the bats to fly towards the ringtone, even when other similar tones were playing in order for them to then get a piece of bait fish. They then released the bats back into the wild and recaptured them between one and four years later. I was surprised. I went into this thinking that at least a year would be a reasonable time for them to remember, given all the other things they need to know and given that long-term memory does have real costs, said Dixon in a press release. Four years strikes me as a long time to hold onto a sound that you might never hear again. The team found that eight retested bats all flew to the sound within seconds, whereas 17 naive bats did not have a strong response. And so what the team is really interested in is probing why such long-term memory may be useful to the bats. Because as um, Dixon already alluded to, long-term memory is metabolically expensive and can interfere with retrieval of more recent memories, as well as slow down decision-making and reduce cognitive flexibility. Therefore, it must convey some sort of long-term advantage that offsets the cost. At least that's the thought. And so they believe that the long-term memory may help the bats to retain their knowledge of rarely encountered prey. And um, one of the things that they noted especially was that they were happy to get to work with wild rather than lab-raised bats. The environment is different and the brain is different in the wild versus captivity, said co-author Gerald Carter, a professor of evolution, ecology, and organismal biology at The Ohio State University. And in the end, it may be that long memory doesn't actually give the animal an evolutionary advantage. That's why we want to figure out when these skills are actually going to help animals and when they could be a liability note sticks in. And so that's a big thing right now, obviously, is to try and figure out some of these, you know, it's very cool to find out that animals do have these long memories or that animals can do these cognitive things, but it's really important to figure out exactly what the selection pressures are on those animals and to be able to figure out if it really is something that has a cost-benefit ratio or if it's something that is maybe, um, you know, true in the population today and may not be true in a popu- in the same population, you know, in a thousand, two thousand years. Um, not that we can figure that out ourselves, obviously, but um, it's really interesting to be able to contemplate that kind of thing. Okay. So now we are going to move on from talking about bats to talking about geckos. Now, geckos are obviously fantastic. They're adorable. Every time I, every, um, all, (laughs) all the time I was writing about them, I kept being like, man, I really want a gecko. Um, but you know, I have cats and cats and, uh, lizards probably don't go together and, um, I briefly had a lizard years ago and I unfortunately went away for, uh, Christmas. And when I came back, it, 
um, had passed away and that was very sad. And, um, that was just a little annoyed, but, uh, anyways, and of course it's always problematic, uh, thinking about getting any kind of exotic pet because you don't know if they are, um, you know, being illegally obtained or if they're being, um, grown in, um, you know, sort of, uh, battery farms in order to be sold to pet shops and things like that. Um, as I was looking through things, I unfortunately saw a picture of some mink in a really, really small cage in, I think, Sweden. And so in Sweden and Denmark, they raise mink, um, and they do it here in the U S too. So it's not like it's unique to Scandinavia, but, um, there are places that raise mink for fur and, uh, those places are not very, um, they're not good. And so, um, you know, people still want mink fur, but they don't, I think probably think about how, you know, these animals are really badly mistreated. Anyways, this is not supposed to be about that. <laughs> this is supposed to be about cool things about geckos. And, um, yeah, so just, you know, if you have animals, make sure that they are sourced ethically. <laughs> that is the long and the short of that. Okay. So geckos are also, um, besides being just ridiculously cute, they're one of those animals that are highly studied by researchers, especially in the material sciences. And so, um, one of the other things I was thinking about is that I remember going to a SciTech cafe years ago when researchers at UMass were talking about creating adhesives based on gecko feet. And so that product is actually commercially available, apparently. Um, and just as a note, I have never used it. This is in no way, shape or form an endorsement. It was just a thing that I remembered about and looked up. Um, and saw that they actually do have commercial products. Anyways, what makes geckos so sought after is, of course, their feet, not just the fact that they're adorable. Um, <laughs> and so researchers want to better understand how they're able to do all the amazing things that they can do, like, you know, walk up walls, run across a ceiling run across water. And so these two feats are based on very uh, different uh, properties and movements, but both are fascinating. And so we're going to talk first about uh, the gecko's ability to stick to walls. And a lot of that is because their feet are covered in tiny hairs called setae, which are further split off into hundreds of even tinier bristles called spatulae. They can have nearly 500,000 setae per foot. And it's been understood for some time that a large part of how they're able to stick using those setae is something called van der Waals forces. This is the attractive and repul attraction and repulsion uh, forces between two dipole molecules. Now, a dipole molecule is one that has a positive and a negative end. Basically, the setae with their spatulae 
are able to get so close to the molecules in walls and ceilings that the molecules in their feet interact with the molecules in the surface they're on, creating electromagnetic attraction. Now, many animals, such as bats, tree frogs, lizards, and a variety of insects use the same force. Um, things that are small are basically um, better able to use that kind of a force. And so researchers at UC Santa Barbara also developed a reusable dry adhesive that e easily stuck to smooth surfaces, which adhered strongly when pushed forward, but slid off when pushed backward. The secret there is the angle and shape of the half-cylinder fibers used in the silicon-based adhesive. And so when you push the flat side down, it increases the surface area, while pulling with the rounded side down decreases the surface area and the adhesive ability, and so it peels off. The researchers found that geckos are able to control the alignment of their toes to always have the ability to stay attached to the surface they're climbing or walking on. So one of the things that's a real advantage is that they have lots of toes. They have like five toes on each foot. And so the toes that maintained contact with the surface were able to shift orientation and better distribute the load. And because they're soft, they can conform to rough surfaces. Now, despite this deep knowledge of the mechanics of the settee, little was known about the surface chemistry, which is what the authors of the new paper sought to figure out. Colleagues from Oregon, Denmark, and Germany joined researchers at the National Institute of Standards and Technology, or NIST, and they used a high-energy synchrotron, which, as you may know, is one of my favorite things, to find that the setae are coated with an ultra-thin layer of lipid molecules in an upright orientation. A lot was already known about how setae work mechanically, said NIST physicist and co-author Cherno J. Now we have a better understanding of how they work in terms of their molecular structure. The study notes that the researchers found the presence of water-repelling lipid molecules both in gecko footprints and in their setae. And so these can also be found in the epidermis of the reptiles arranged in a brick and mortar pattern. NIST's synchrotron microscope was able to actually see the molecular structure and translate it by revealing where the molecules on the surface of the 3D object are located precisely and how they are oriented. They hypothesize that this thin nanometer thick film may help the gecko push away any water beneath the spatulae to make sure they're able to retain close contact with the surface and thus help them stick on wet surfaces. And they also found that the keratin fibers that compose the setae, and of course keratin is what makes your hair and fingernails and other things, um, obviously my one of my favorite examples of something made of keratin is you know, it's actually uh, what rhino horns are made of. And um, so, yeah, very interesting how versatile keratin is. And so that is what is used to compose, again, the setae and spatulae. And so they're aligned in the direction of the setae. And so that, they hypothesize, helps them resist abrasion because they're 
in a orientation that keeps them from getting um, irritated. The team envisions that this new information might help with the creation of gecko boots that stick to wet surfaces or gecko gloves that help you grip wet uh, tools. So yeah, that's pretty cool. The most exciting thing for me about this biological system is that everything is perfectly optimized on every scale, from the macro to the micro to the molecular, said co-author Stanislav Gorb, a biologist at Kiel University in Germany. This can help biomimetic engineers know what to do next. And so, of course, this is a big part of biomimicry is not to reinvent the wheel, but to figure out what evolution has already done and then shamelessly copy it. (laughs) Okay, so let us go back finally to the fact that geckos can also briefly basically walk on water. Research published in Cell Biology back in 2018 found that they were able to skim along water in order to outrun predators. The research began when co-author Ardian Jusifi was a postdoc in the lab of UC Berkeley biophysicist Robert Full. He was doing field work during the monsoon season in Singapore and caught video of a gecko escaping a predator. It was super weird and unexpected, so naturally we had to test this, said co-author Jasmine Nerodi, another former Full student who now splits her time between Rockefeller University and the University of Oxford. Now, small, lightweight lightweight bugs can rely entirely on surface tension to keep above the water. Larger animals, like basilic lizards, use a slapping motion with their feet to create pockets of air bubbles that keep them from sinking. Geckos are in a middle area between being light enough for the surface tension and heavy and strong enough for water slapping. Yet they can run across water at almost a meter per second. The team took Asian house geckos and created an experimental setup by using a laser cutter to create entry and exit holes in a large plastic box to make a water tank. They built two wooden ramps so that the geckos could enter and exit the water easily. They then placed high-speed cameras above and to the side at right angles to capture their movement. A gecko would then be placed on the entry ramp, and then a team member would gently poke it uh, to startle them into swimming away. Unsurprisingly, geckos have figured out a third way to accomplish this sort of walking on water. They use both surface tension and surface slapping, and they also employ the fact of that water resistance that we talked about a few seconds ago. So they're They're covered in a water-resistant biofilm. They lift their bodies above the water to reduce drag, and this makes it easier for them to propel themselves forward. They also use a wriggling motion with their bodies and tails as if they're swimming, even though they're halfway out of the water. If you look at the top, if you look at them from the top, it almost looks like they're just swimming really fast, said Narati. And then you look at them from the side and you realize their upper body and their legs are completely out of the water, even though they're still doing the swimming motion that helps propel them forward. To test whether the geckos were using surface tension, the researchers added soap to the water to disrupt the ability of the water to cling. If you put a water strider in that soapy water, it will sink. The basilic lizard will be perfectly fine. 
the gecko, once again, was in between. It didn't sink, but it was but its speed was cut in half. We knew they couldn't maintain their entire body weight by slapping alone from the theoretical calculations, said Nimrodi. Interestingly, about half of the geckos tried to swim as fast as possible, despite the obstacle to their speed. The other half gave up after a few strokes and then simply planked and sank to the bottom. Now, geckos can hold their breath for several minutes, but the researchers nonetheless rescued them after around 30 seconds. We hypothesize that if they can't dart away in time, rather than slowly skimming from a predator, it's best for them to just hide under the water and hold their breath, said Narati. And so, once again, these insights could be used to further biomimicry. And so, for instance, this could be used to help develop robots that could use the gecko's undulating tail movements and be coated with a similar kind of hydrophobic coating in order to allow them to do this sort of skimming across water. So, yeah, um, once again, the whole point really, other than to find out really neat things about the creatures that are around us, is to shamelessly steal from uh, evolution. <laughs> Which, you know, obviously, why reinvent the wheel? Um, it's absolutely cool to be able to create things that are um, coming from evolution, because the thing is, is that evolution works on way larger timescales than uh, we can. And so it is able to refine animals to be really good at the sorts of things that they do. And so I think it's really cool that material scientists are really looking to nature. And I think that it also gives people a better appreciation of nature and a better idea that the more that we are able to look at nature, the more of nature that is available to us to look at, the more things we might be able to figure out that would not only uh, help the natural world, but help ourselves. And since humans are really, really wonderfully motivated by uh, greed and self-centeredness, I am all for it. Uh, save the geckos in order to figure out how to do interesting things with them. Um, so yeah. Okay, that's all the time we have for tonight. Um, thank you, as always, for listening. You've been listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.